You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. We're going to look at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17 this morning. And there is an axiom that says, Desperate times call for desperate measures. Many of us here this morning may consider our present circumstances... Our present situations desperate. Maybe you've lost a job. The failing economy has put you in serious financial trouble. Your marriage is crumbling or other relationships are hurting. Your health may be failing. On and on I could go with different examples. Maybe things have already come to your mind. Maybe you're going through other things that might constitute desperate times. But in light of these desperate times, what are the desperate measures that you are taking to bring solutions to your desperate times or at the very least to bring peace in the midst of the storm because it seems that many of us just go from one desperate time to the next desperate time to the next desperate time really with no solution with no peace in our text this morning we find Jesus encountering two very desperate situations And in both of these scenarios, we see that Jesus is the desperate measure for desperate times. Now, you remember that we've just come through Jesus preaching a sermon to his disciples specifically, but it was a mixed multitude that was there in chapter 6. And Jesus really gets to the heart of the matter, and he, he talks about what our life looks like. As Christians, and and if there's fruit in our life, and if there is evidence that we truly have been changed, because many people will say to him, Lord, Lord, but do not do the things that he says. And so there's this conflict of what we say and what we do. And so now Jesus transitions from that message that ought to have convicted us to the core of who we are. And, And now... He's thrust into a couple situations where we really see who he is. And Luke gives us some stories to illustrate that Jesus is the answer. That Jesus is the one who we ought to be putting our faith into. That Jesus is the solution. That Jesus is the reason that we would be able to apply the things that he's been talking about. And it says, now when he concluded all his sayings, and so his Sermon is done. He concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people. He entered Capernaum. And you remember this was a place that Jesus hung out a lot. It was sort of the hub of his ministry. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And so the first encounter, this first desperate situation that I want us to look at this morning is that there's a Roman soldier's sick servant. And we're going to learn three things about this Roman soldier. Three unique characteristics that give us some insight into how we ought to respond to desperate times. Three unique characteristics for us as people who are going through desperate times. Because I think when I look at this centurion's life and the way he handled himself, it stands in stark contrast to the way that I typically see people deal with difficulty. The the characteristics in his life, I think, are some great insight 
and serve as a great example for us. Three things about this man. He has a servant who is dear to him. Some of your translations may say who was valuable to him. And he was sick and ready to die. And so when he heard about Jesus, doesn't say how he heard about him or where he heard about him, but news of Jesus and the amazing things that he's doing is spreading. And we talked about how attractive Jesus is. And that if we'll just let Jesus flow forth from our life, that he will be attractive and people will hear about him. And this centurion, this Roman Gentile, had heard about Jesus. And in his desperate time, he reaches out to Jesus. He sent elders of the Jews to Jesus, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus... They begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. The first thing I want us to notice about this Roman soldier is that he cared about people. And it's evident in a few different ways. First of all, this servant of his, this slave of his, was dear to him. He was valuable to him. Now, in most people's mindset in this culture, a a servant, a slave, was just property. It, It was someone who existed to meet your needs, to make you money, but you didn't care about them. You didn't love them. It was like an automobile or a hammer or a scalpel in the hands of a doctor. They they were a tool. They were a means to an end, but this guy really cared about his servants, about his slaves. Not only that, but he cared about people enough that these Jews were willing to go to Jesus and to beg and to plead that Jesus would come and meet this man's need because they cared about him. In fact, he had given of his own money. Apparently, he was a wealthy man, this centurion. And a centurion was a a Roman soldier who was in charge of approximately 100 men. He was a powerful man. He was a wealthy man. And he gave of his wealth, he gave of his power to build a synagogue there in Capernaum because he loved the Jews. He loved people that were under his authority. He cared about them. He he treated his servant well. He treated the Jews well who were under his authority. And most of the time, they weren't treated well. And so this was a man that cared about people. And typically what happens in desperate times when we're going through hardships, whether it be financially or relationally or physically, is that we get very much self-focused or we isolate ourselves. But this guy, he was a guy that cared about people. He had a heart for people. Another thing about this guy is that he was humble. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. He was humble. He didn't even think of himself worthy that Jesus would come into his own home. This was a powerful man. This was a man of influence and wealth. And he didn't even think that he was worthy to have Jesus come to his house. Even though the people around him thought he was completely worthy. In fact, in verse 4 it says that he was deserving. But he didn't let that mindset overtake him. He didn't allow pride to creep into his life. 
He didn't have an entitlement mentality because of his power that says, you have to come to my house. Why wouldn't you come to my house? It's a privilege for you to come to my house. He didn't have that kind of mentality, nor did he have the entitlement mentality that believes everybody owes me something. And this attitude, both of these attitudes that certainly exist and probably exist in many of us, this attitude that, that I'm somebody special and, and why wouldn't you want to be graced with my presence? Or this attitude that says, you owe me something. The world owes me something. I've been wronged. I've been hurt. And, and the, the world revolves around me and my problems. He didn't have this kind of attitude. And it's this attitude that really stems from pride. It's really a high view of self and a low view of God. That's what it is. This entitlement, this pride, this self-focus, this thinking of yourself worthy. The opposite of this guy who said, I'm not worthy. I don't even know why you'd bother coming to my house. I know I'm powerful. I know I'm wealthy. But there's something uniquely special about you, Jesus. And, and when I see myself in relationship to you, I'm nothing. See, that's the key. When we compare ourselves with others, which Paul tells us is unwise. When we compare ourselves with others, we can always find people that... We are smarter than them, that we're more spiritual than they are, that we're wealthier than they are, that we're more successful than they are, that we're harder working, that we're better parents, on and on and on. We can always think of people that we're better than, and that's what we do. We gravitate in our mind to compare ourselves with with other people that we're superior to, and that's why we like to put people down. It's why we like to criticize people. Because then it makes me feel better about myself. Because in reality, I'm comparing myself with you. And so if I can tear you down, then it builds me up. But see, this guy doesn't do that. And we ought not do that. What this guy does is he compares himself with Jesus. See, when you do that, and when you're in right relationship with God, you see yourself in light of Him in comparison to him, and then all of a sudden you realize, like Isaiah, like Peter, a few chapters back here in Luke, you realize, I am nothing. I have nothing to offer God. I'm a man of unclean lips. My heart is desperately wicked. The problem with our mentality too often is that we are completely ignorant of ourselves. Well, we think we've got everything figured out. But in reality, we are completely ignorant of who we really are. And we have this high view of self and this low view of God. And you know what? It permeates our whole life. It permeates how we worship. Because why would I worship when I'm so amazing? Why would I worship? There's nothing to worship but me and me alone. We would never say that because it's blasphemous. And we know it's blasphemous. But in reality, that's our our mindset. Is that everything and everybody ought to be worshiping me and it's about me. And so it's no wonder that there's no passion in our worship. Because we're self-focused. And we're thinking of ourself and not of God and His glory. It permeates how we read the Bible we, we read the Bible with the, the wrong kind of lens. We, we only see ourself and, and we only see how it relates to me. And, 
God doesn't speak to me. And on and on it goes as we only see the Bible in relationship to ourselves, rather than reading the Bible wanting to see God and His glory. And believe me, when you begin to see God and His glory, there's plenty of application. But see, the church has twisted it. We have twisted it. It permeates how we relate to the church. And see, we come to church and it's all about me. And what did I get out of it? And nobody talked to me. And I didn't feel anything. And my felt needs weren't met. See, again, it's about me. Rather than saying, did you experience the glory of God? That's the question. Not, did you get warm fuzzies? Not, was, was there something that made you feel good? Did somebody make you feel like you are the most important person in the world? Let me tell you, you are not. Jesus Christ is the most important person in the world. And until we rightly relate to that, we will live in absolute self-consumption, mediocrity, and defeat. And you'll always wonder, why do I not overcome sin? Why is life such a struggle? Why do I have so many problems? Why am I always in this desperate situation? It's because you don't see that desperate times call for desperate measures. You see, life is a desperate time. Your entire life is desperate. And you need Jesus. You need to absolutely surrender your life to Him where you become a non-factor. You become a non-issue. That's what this Roman centurion was figuring out. He didn't care about his money. He didn't care about his influence. He knew that Jesus was the real deal and that he was a sinner. See, we can have that concept in our mind, but how does it translate into our life? This guy was humble. A third thing about this Roman centurion is that he had great faith. Look at the end of verse 7 through verse 10. But say the word and my servant will be healed. Say the word. You don't need to come here. I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. You're powerful. Just say the word. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. And so this man had great faith. He knew that Jesus could just say the word. He didn't have to physically be there. He could just say the word and his servant would be healed. This desperate time called for a desperate measure. Yes, Jesus, it had to be his word. But he didn't have to be there. Jesus is powerful. And this man's faith, this Roman centurion's faith, surpassed even the disciples at this point. In fact, it says that Jesus marveled at his faith. Now, I don't know if that sticks out to you or not, but if you're familiar at all with the Gospels, the Gospels don't record Jesus marveling very often. In fact, it's only three times, twice because of people's faith this time, and then another person's faith Jesus marvels at. And then a third time because of their lack of faith. 
Only three times in the Gospels do we see Jesus marveling, being amazed, which kind of makes sense because Jesus isn't going to marvel at that which he created, not to mention he came out of heaven, so there's not much glorious about the earth compared to heaven. He doesn't marvel a whole lot, but he marvels about this man's Faith, if Jesus was to examine our faith, which he does, but if we were to actually be cognizant of it, and he was to look at our faith, would he marvel at the fact that we have so much faith or because we have so little faith? This man had great faith, and Jesus commended him for his faith. The Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, I don't think I'm twisting Scripture to say that with faith, we do please God. Without it, we don't. With it, we do. And this man had great faith. He wasn't raised in the church. He wasn't even a Jew. He had probably never even been associated with the God of the Bible until very recently. He would have been very ignorant of the Scriptures. And yet, despite all of that, he had great faith in Jesus. And he believed In Jesus' word. He said, just say the word. And what does the Bible tell us? That faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Now does that mean that, that I just speak things into existence? No, that's not what Jesus and what this text and what the word teaches us. It teaches us that God's word, his inspired word... The word that is breathed forth from God. That we have the unbelievable privilege of holding in our laps the word of God. It's powerful. And it produces faith in us. And so if you're a person who in your desperate situations, in desperate times is lacking faith. It's because you are not resonating with the word of God. The word of God is not having its right place in your life. You need to take God's word and you need to believe it like this man did. He, he heard the word of Jesus and he believed it and he took it to the bank. Do we? Do we believe God's word? If we did, I think it would change how we relate to our desperate situations. The economy. There's so much paranoia about the, the economy as if it took God by surprise. God's not paranoid. God's promised to provide for us. And he'll do that. He hasn't promised to provide for all of your wants. He didn't say that you're going to be able to keep that house that you bought that you couldn't afford to begin with. He didn't say you're going to be able to pay your way out of debt that you shouldn't have gotten yourself into in the first place without having some repercussions. He didn't say you're going to be able to, to get the latest and greatest tech toy. But he said, I'll provide for your needs. And, and there's a lot of hurting people out there right now financially. And a lot of people are just in paranoia about the economy. And it's sad when you see Christians fearful and paranoid about things that God said, I will take care of you. That's where the rubber meets the road, you guys. Because for so often, we've been able to take care of ourselves. And maybe God has pulled that carpet out from under you and says, Okay, enough of the talk, uh, enough of the lip service, enough Bible studies... Are you going to believe it? Do you believe it? This man cared about people. This man was humble. This man had great faith. Three unique characteristics for people that are going through desperate situations, desperate times. 
three things I think we can really try to emulate in our own life. Well, a second scenario that Jesus encounters is found in verses 11 through 17. And this is a widow's dead son. It said, now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And Nain is about 24 miles south of Capernaum, about six miles south of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. It's, it's a town that is pretty much unknown. It's only listed here scripturally. But by the providence of God, Jesus is led to this town for this purpose. And he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And so you can picture the scene, just this multitude of people following Jesus wherever he went. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. And so this is a desperate time. In fact, it's a much more desperate time than the centurion was facing. This was a widow whose only son has now died. Her only hope of being provided for was dead. Her husband was gone. Her son, who would have been caring for her and providing for her, he's now dead. And so she would have been hopelessly left to fend for herself. And I'm sure that aside from the grief of losing her son, that was a a huge issue to her. How in the world am I going to survive? And maybe you're thinking that. Maybe this is the, the, the desperate kind of situation that you find yourself in. But in this scenario, the focus is not on the widow. The the focus is not on the people. The focus here is upon Jesus. And I want us to notice four things about Jesus. Four qualities that should encourage us in our desperate times. The first thing is found in verse 13. It says, When the Lord, that is Jesus, saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. The first thing, the first characteristic about Jesus is that he's compassionate. He looked at this woman who had lost everything, who was in a desperate situation, and his heart broke for her. This word compassion, it it speaks of the bowels. It speaks uh, of the, the inner parts. And you know when you just have empathy that comes from within for somebody, and your heart breaks for somebody? That's, that's what this means. And Jesus, who is God, who is omniscient. In other words, he knows everything about everybody. He doesn't say to this woman, you know what? Deal with it. You know how many people are in worse situations than you? You know how many people have dealt with this? He doesn't do that at all. His heart breaks for her. He has compassion on her. And just as his heart broke for this woman, so his heart breaks for you in your desperate situation. Jesus' heart breaks for you. He's not jaded to your situation. He's not distant from you. Yes, by his providence, he has allowed that to come into your life, whether it be an economic difficulty or a relational struggle or physical maladies. He's allowed that to come into your life. Now, some of it you may have brought on yourself, and you, you can't forget about that factor that you've been unwise with your money, that you've driven your relationships into the ground by your selfishness and your stupidity, that you've eaten poorly and haven't exercised and, and 
now you have abused your body to the point that you have some physical issues. We can't rule that out either. But yes, God, by his providence, has allowed that to come into your life. And you have to trust that he's in control. See, again, it's the rubber meeting the road. Because we can say, yes, Lord, I worship you. You're sovereign. You're powerful. I, I believe that you are in control. We can say that, but it's when these things come into our life and how we respond to it that really shows if we believe that or not. And really shows whether we believe that, that God is both sovereign and loving, that he's compassionate, that he cares about us, that his heart breaks for our situation. A second thing we learn about Jesus is that he has power over death. He tells this lady, do not weep. Then he did something about it. And that's what I love about God. He doesn't just say stuff. God doesn't just say to you, I love you. I'm sorry about your situation. It's really too bad. Wish I could do something. God doesn't just talk. God acts. And he says to this woman, do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus has power over death. You see, most rabbis wouldn't have even come close to this funeral procession. This young man would have probably died that same day. They would have anointed his body. They would have wrapped it in cloths. Then they, they would have placed him on a plank. It says coffin here, but it, it's more like a plank. Don't think of our coffins that are all closed up and look really nice. Just think of a, a board and this man being carried on this board out of town. Now, why were they carrying him out of town? Because Jewish law prohibited burial places being within the city limits. You had to take the dead person, the corpse, outside of town. And so rabbis, seeing a funeral procession, seeing all the mourners, seeing the corpse, would have went the other way because they don't want to become unclean. But Jesus didn't care about that because it doesn't even affect him because he's powerful over death. And he goes right up to the board, right up to this coffin. He touches it. And you can imagine the, the astonishment on, on the faces of the people. Who is this guy? He, he has power over death. He's unaffected by the fact that corpses made one unclean. Jesus is unaffected by death. In fact, the Bible says that, that he's given us victory over death. 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death has been taken away in Jesus. In Romans 6.23, it tells us about the second death. See, we think of death just as the physical body. And we fear that, that, that one day this body won't exist anymore. And you know why we fear that so much? It goes back to the selfishness thing. That we think it's all about us. And oh my gosh, there's one day that this person won't exist anymore. This tent won't be here anymore. And how will the world go on without me? See, that's why we're so afraid of death because we're so consumed with the temporal. But there's a greater death. There's the second death that Jesus has power over as well. And in Romans 6.23 gets to the heart of that. It says the wages of sin is death. Not only physically, which after Adam and Eve sinned and brought sin into the world, it brought death physically. It brought deterioration of our bodies. And we can see that. If, if you're a little older, just go look at your wedding picture. 
you can see that you've deteriorated. Some of us are deteriorating by size. You know, we're, we're getting bigger, but we're actually falling apart. But the wages of sin is death. Not only physically, but spiritually. It's a separation from God for all eternity. But the gift of God, or some translations say the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the wages of sin, what we deserved was death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You see, Jesus has victory over death. And that's a quality about Jesus that should encourage us in our desperate times. Because see, whatever we're going through, financially, relationally, physically, whatever it is, nothing compares to the desperate situation of being separated and alienated and at enmity with God. We might fear the economic climate and just think, I can't believe this is happening. My 401k has now become an absolute joke. My mutual funds. You know, Dave Ramsey's talking a lot about saving money and investing money. And, and, and you know what? It's, it, they're great principles for us to not spend every dollar we make But I mean, hey, the white elephant, the big elephant in the room, as we're listening to this, is that you can't get any interest anymore. I mean, the banking system in our country is absolutely falling apart. And for many, that is scary. Or or maybe that relationships that were going so well are falling apart and you just don't understand it. And it's absolutely rocking your world. A marriage of 10, 15, 20 years that's now going into the toilet. This child that you have raised and sacrificed for is now rebelling against you and hates you. Doesn't want to have anything to do with you. And that is hard and that is difficult. Your body that maybe at one time was just so physically fit and you were so proud of it, it is falling apart. And those are scary things and those are difficult things. But you know what? The enemy uses those things. To divert us from what really is scary. And that is being separated from God. And see, Jesus has won the victory over that. And so it should wipe out, really, all of our fear. Because that's the worst thing that can happen. And it's been taken care of. Jesus has victory over that. He has power over death. Another thing we see in verse 14, a third quality about Jesus, is that his word is powerful. He just stood there. The funeral procession has come to a stop. The mourners have quieted down. The mother is watching. Who is this guy? What is he doing? I'm sure some were thinking, the nerve of this guy. And he simply speaks, young man, I say to you, arise. He doesn't have to do what Elisha had to do, lay on the body three times. There's none of that. Jesus' word is powerful. Just like he spoke the heavens and the earth into existence by the word of his mouth. His word is powerful. He spoke and the young man arose. And the Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is dis- as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is powerful and the The context of Hebrews 4.12, the writer is talking about rest. It's talking about peace. It's talking about trusting God by faith, entering into the rest of the Lord. And how do we do that? 
through the word of God because it's powerful and it's living and it's active. And Jesus' word is powerful. And we have his word at our disposal. And that's a characteristic about Jesus that should encourage us. We should be longing for a word from God in our desperate times. Not a word from cable news that says that the economy is getting better. How many of us are looking for that? How many of us are, are going to our RSS feeds and our outlook every day, hoping that there's a, a news clipping in there that's, that's popped in there today that will say the economy's getting better? How many of us are, are, are waiting for a phone call to say that, that the relationship is, is better? An email to clear everything up. How many of us are, are hoping that the doctor's prognosis is, is, is good and that we're not as bad off physically as we thought? Now listen, I'm not being insensitive. I'm not saying that, that I want our economy to fail or that I want your relationships to go into the toilet or that I want you to die. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that we ought to be longing more than any of those things for a word from God for our situation. A word from the Lord. Not the empty words of an economist or the fleeting promises of a loved one or the I hope so from a doctor who really doesn't know. But a word from the Lord. A word from Jesus. His word is powerful. The last thing about Jesus that I want us to notice is that he's God. That Jesus came, the God of the universe came and dwelt among us. It says, so he who was dead sat up and began to speak. I would have loved to have seen that scene, that crowd, the, the reaction. And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all. I bet it did. And they glorified God. And so their fear turned to worship saying, a great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. And so, it's what started with fear. Initially, they were like, who in the world is this guy? Initially, what started his fear turned into worship. They glorified God. They, they recognized who he was, and they wanted that. Do you recognize who Jesus is? It should create worship. You see, worship shouldn't have to be drummed up. People say, oh, the worship wasn't very good this morning. The music wasn't that great. I didn't like the songs. I didn't know the songs. There was something wrong with the sound. That's not worship. That's style. That's music. And I, and I love music. But we confuse music with worship. This, what happens here, is simply a catalyst for you to be able to see how amazing God is. Because we shouldn't have to drum that up. We don't have to <laughs> clap you to get going. We, we shouldn't have to tell you to feel the emotion. Do you feel it? Spirit, fall upon us. We, we shouldn't have to do any of that nonsense. You should come here with an absolute overwhelming sense of how unbelievable God is. And I don't think you do. I do not think you do. Because we have to be consumed with the music, the style, the words. And I didn't feel it today. And nobody talked to me today. And there was, just something wasn't right. And we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it myself. But the fear of God, the, the understanding of who God is should turn into worship. It should turn into glory. Of understanding who we are in comparison with who God is. 
It should create worship within us. They glorified God and they said, A great prophet has risen amongst us. Now, they didn't have a complete understanding of who Jesus is. They thought he was just a great prophet. But they were on the road to understanding who Jesus is. There was progress happening. And certainly Jesus is a great prophet. But you know what? No title really truly encapsulates who Jesus is. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he's a prince. Yes, he's a prophet. But no title of Jesus really gets to the heart. But Jesus is God. God came and dwelt among us. And that's why they said God has visited his people. Now, maybe they didn't quite understand all of the ramifications of that. But we have clarity. Do you understand that God, who created everything, including you, that that created the universe that Art spoke of a few weeks ago, that absolutely blows our minds, do you understand that he became a man? People say, God just hasn't spoken to me. I haven't heard from God. God's distant from me. None of that is true. God came and dwelt among us. And the way that you can get to know him is by getting to know Jesus and seeing Jesus. That's how God wants to be known, is in Jesus. This is the main thrust of the Gospel of Luke. That God became a man so that you could relate with him, so that you could know him, so that you could be absolutely overwhelmed with him, so that you would worship him. And nobody has to drum that up. And nobody has to put you in the mood. It's a perpetual understanding of how awesome God is. It's not only the thrust of the Gospel of Luke, it's the theme of the entire Bible. The plan of redemption. That God would step out of eternity into time, become a man, give his life for the sins of the world. Are you overwhelmed with that understanding? You should be. Let's stand and pray together. Father, desperate times do call for desperate measures. Lord, not in what we might think. Lord, not trying harder, not, not trying to drum up something to, to make us feel like you're working in our life. Lord, but desperate in the sense that we absolutely abandon self and we throw ourselves at your mercy and we give our life in complete and utter surrender to you, recognizing Jesus that you became a man, that the God of the universe came and dwelt among us. And that ought to radically revolutionize our life. Jesus, it ought to create worship that no person, no song has to drum up or to create within us. Lord, may we recognize how awesome you are. God, may we be overcome with that knowledge today. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.